Now the lounge is full of farmers for the seven. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always, our professor of Peel in Southampton, England, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today? It's a pretty good day. Uh, let's see. Southampton just escaped relegation from the Premier League on gold differential, so watched a bit of football or soccer, as you Yanks call it. Uh, let's see what else going on. Curling's done for the year. I know the season's over. Is it <laughs> what done do we for do you now? <laughs> Is it done for you? No, actually, uh, Thursday was my first league game, uh, and while I, I was, I missed the first three games. Uh, and while I was gone, my team won twice and tied. And then I came into the lineup and we lost. So we know what uh, we know. We know the uh, the reason for that now, don't we? Uh oh. So you're gonna be riding the you're the fifth now. <laughs> uh, I need I need to be. I told them right after the game. I was like, you know, we're going back to because the guy that was my third skipped the last three games. I was like, we can have him skip the rest of the season. It'll be fine. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Got to figure the lineup out, but. Yeah. Not well, he bad. he missed the he missed the last game, so we played three handed. So now, once we get back to having, uh, after, once eventually at some point we have four people on a team, I'll slide in at third and and let him take control, since that's that appears to be what needs to happen. Yeah. Well, that's it's all a figuring it out kind of experience, right? So so you're playing with this team through the summer then. Yeah, and it looks like we're going to be able to get ice all the way through August. So while everyone else in the world's curling, everyone else in the Northern Hemisphere uh, is done curling, we, we, are, we have just started. So my, my league will go right up until football season. And then, unfortunately, it looks like they're looking to get go back to curling on Saturdays in the fall, which does not work for me. I've got Virginia Tech season tickets, so that... Not really a good option for me Saturdays in the fall. So you'll take the fall off and then come back after then, college football season. Yeah, basically once uh, once Virginia Tech football is done, then I can get back into curling and bond spiels and all that. There's a I don't know. There's a couple of bond spiels this summer. Um, Atlanta has one Fourth of July weekend. Uh, Wilmington, North Carolina has one. So who knows? Maybe I can get some non-league curling in during the summer. Uh, and there's always the there's always the barbecue bond spiel in Kansas City. That's a lot of fun. I wish I could make it back there at some point. Yeah, that's that's kind of one of my favorite uh, arena spiels for sure. It's always a good weekend. If you got a chance, uh, I recommend checking it out. That's right. Uh, it's about a hundred dollars. It's a little over a hundred dollars per person now, and you get free food and free drinks uh, the whole weekend, and it is a good time if you can make it to Kansas City for their spiel. It's always like one of the first two weekends in August. They usually try to do it when the Royals are in town. So yeah, it's a good time. Yeah, I I, I got to say I miss that about U.S. bond spiels. I think everywhere I've played, the best hospitality bar none are in the the, the recreational spiels in the U.S. So yeah, Kansas City's a good one. If you can ever get into the Rocky Top one in Tennessee, yeah. that's a nice I went and did spiel. that one once. Um, yeah, that was a great time. Let's see. I'm trying to think of other good summer spiels I've been in. 
Well, I guess like the steers and beers in Dallas Fort Worth's kind of around now, right? It's late May kind of thing. Uh, I think they've 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 been doing it in April. Like I think it recently happened, and yeah, that's always a good one too. Yeah. So that like when I was when I was Oklahoma Texas, they always had like a kind of end of the year one that this time mm-hmm. of year, and that was good. Uh, and then I guess we normally hang it up until August, and then Kansas City was kind of the the start to kind of ease your way back into the season kind of spiel. Yeah, and there was always wasn't there always like one or two Canadian teams that would come down and play in that to kind of get ready for their seasons too. Not not I don't mean like competitive. I mean like club level <laughs> club level curlers. I think it. Well, I think Jerry Gertz had a team in there with like somebody good <laughs> like not that huh. he's like not a bad curler but i think i remember like seeing on social media i think maybe colin hodgson or something around like, like a basically a rando team right like or then the hollywood the hollywood one always gets like big names yeah that's a summer spiel too yeah i i, I kind of feel that like the west coast arena clubs have a bit of an advantage in that it's a pretty natural draw to say do you want to go play in wine country for a spawn spiel or do you want to go play in hollywood right i think KC, I kind of liked it because it it was it's exactly in the sweet spots. It it's about five six hours from Oklahoma and Texas, right? But it's also yep. five six hours from the from the Twin Cities, and yeah, so they so they kind of pull in there like there's always a bunch of Twin Cities teams at that at that spiel. Yeah, they got a couple of Dakota curling club teams and a few of that too. So it kind of would pull in from a good spot. And I think yeah. the Rocky Top the, same thing. It's not too far from Ontario. Similar kind of thing. Six seven hour drive from mm-hmm. Toronto. So they got some Ontario teams plenty of arena curlers too so that's kind of another one of my favorite when they always bring in they always bring in ice king to make their ice too that's the Uh, other big thing about the the rocky top on spiel oh yeah it's impeccable ice (laughs) well so they they have the deal where um they they bring in the oca ice ice tech crew and give them a free entry in exchange for them making the ice and they get in there maybe 36 hours 48 hours ahead of time and yeah, they get a couple days to make it. Yeah, and for a not a great facility, the ice you get in July when it's got to be ninety degrees and really high humidity is is amazing. So, I haven't been since they apparently they had to skip a year because that rink was being renovated. So it might be a lot nicer now. But I mean, the ice was impeccable. The food and the drinks were great. Uh, the people are awesome. Uh, that was a good time. Yeah, that's another one to check out. Uh, another sure. one, uh, I met the guys from the Orlando Curling Club while I was on vacation, and they're actually going to host a summer spiel in uh, Daytona Beach. So that's going to be one to check out if you get a chance as well. And those guys are awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, there's a there's not summer spieling is not as big in Europe. There is a really amazing spiel in Cortina every year in mid-June that I went to two years ago. And that that's in like the the old Cortina Stadium from the Olympics in 56 hmm. and they've redone this wood ice hockey stadium so one half is all glass and you're surrounded all around you by the Alps so the view is spectacular Whoa. they get in one of the top European ice makers to make the ice and it's similar kind of thing it's the food all the time covered cheap drinks and Cortina's like a ski resort so kind of a lot of fun to be had just in and around town too so uh, that's one I recommend there used to be a really good one but it's gone by the wayside the Sterling Skins was kind of a Skins one up in Scotland in uh, August 
And I don't really think there's much happening here until September, curling-wise. Certainly not in Scotland. There might be one or two spiels on the continent in late August, but there's not much going on here for sure. So yeah, yeah. I have no idea. I have no idea what the summer bond spiel circuit in Canada looks like. I, have, I imagine it's non-existent. It, you know, it's not. There's, there's basically. I would say each province has maybe one. I, I mean, I haven't really lived curled in Canada in like, you know, twenty years now. But when I was there, I think there was one in Quebec, like northern Quebec. There was one in uh, the interior of BC that I knew about. Montreal one year had one in the summer, like downtown. But yeah, there there really wasn't much summer spieling going on. I think it's just the season there runs from September through late April. So I think by that point, most people, especially in Canada, they want to be outdoors, not... They're ready to play golf, yeah. Yeah, and you only get three good months of summer in Canada, so you, you want to take take advantage and of then, it, right? Yeah, and then down here, down here it gets so hot that you're wanting to go inside of an ice rink. Yeah, I think there's, it's a, especially for arena clubs, it's kind of a good good way to fundraise. And it's probably a pretty cheap, uh, easy time of year to get ice and uh, cheap ice at that. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you were in Orlando? Yeah, went on vac- uh That's kind of why we haven't had a show here in a couple weeks, was I went down there on vacation. Um and managed to somehow meet John Schuster while I was down on vacation in Orlando in Disney World. So that was actually really cool. That was one of the highlights of the trip. Like we went to, I don't know if you want the full, uh, you know, the full trip recap like the Disney podcasts do. But yeah, the one of the highlights, even though we went to all the, we went to three parks. But one of the highlights for me personally was getting to meet John Schuster uh, randomly at Disney World. So that was cool. Yeah, so... I guess to me that the first thing is when athletes go on TV and they say they're going to Disney World after they win a big championship, I guess they actually do go to Disney World. Yeah. Uh, so I've all right. So I've actually been to Disney World during the Super Bowl uh, because that's a great time to go to Disney World, especially uh, during the Super Bowl. Like I went to the Magic Kingdom during the Broncos Seahawks Super Bowl. That was a huge blowout. Uh, and it was great because you can just do ride, ride, ride because no one's in the park. It's wide open. I think we did all of the rides in Fantasyland in like two hours, which is unheard of. Uh, so we did that during the Super Bowl. And then the next day, they actually do bring the Super Bowl MVP to Disney World for a parade. So the next day, we went back to the Magic Kingdom and watched the parade. It was kind of interesting. You know, it was kind of a neat thing to see so yeah when those athletes say i'm going to disneyland or going to disney world they're actually going to disney all right it's kind it's actually part of a whole it's it's really interesting so because i've seen stories about it so going into the super bowl you get this contract and it's basically depending on how good of a player you are going into the super bowl um, if you win super bowl mvp you get x amount of dollars from disney to for the commercial because they'll put the camera in your face after the game you say i'm going to disney world uh and then they air that commercial right after the game's over and then the next day they bring your family to disney world and you do you know you do the whole thing with the parade and all that and your family gets to go to the park and you know it's more promotion for for disney but so going into the game you have this set contract of how much you're going to get if you how ha- if you happen to win Super Bowl MVP and do the Disney thing. So yeah, so 
I guess that may have been part of John Schuster's deal was Disney brought him in. So they brought him in to uh, their ESPN club, which is on the boardwalk, which is over by Epcot. Uh, and they did a 30-minute Q&A and a meet-and-greet. Um, and so he was there. Uh, and I didn't find out about it until – and my wife claims that I knew all of this was happening. And <laughs> – you know, we, we scheduled the trip to Disney before they even won the gold, so there was absolutely no way. Uh, but so Thursday, we had done park days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday we were just beat. So we were sitting by the pool, and the plan was to go meet my mom for dinner at Disney's Boardwalk that night. So we're sitting by the pool, and I'm looking on Twitter, and the Orlando Curling Club had tweeted, come meet you know, Olympic champion John Schuster at 7 p.m. tonight at ESPN Club on Disney's Boardwalk. And I just look at Aaron like, you are not going to believe this. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't even have to change our plans. Like, so we go to we go to Disney's Boardwalk, um, you know, and we're hanging out at one of the bars that are there on the Boardwalk before uh, going in. Um. And so Aaron sends me over to check and see how full it is and whether we need to get our name on a list or something like that. So I'm walking over there, and to my right, I hear a distinctly Minnesotan voice uh, talking to his kids, and I'm like, I know exactly who this is. And I turn over, and there's John Schuster. And I'm like, hey, looking forward to this thing. Thanks for coming to this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so then we went and got a, got a seat at the ESPN Club. They did... A, basically, they had, they had kind of a radio host guy, and I've been looking for video of it. I can't find it anywhere, but it looks like this is a regular thing at that ESPN club is when they bring in athletes is they have a radio host guy who kind of talks to them, and then they do a Q&A segment. Um, I asked him about uh, TV coverage, you know, future TV coverage and helping grow the sport. Um, and then they did a meet and greet where you could, you know, meet him and take a picture with the gold medal and all that. So it was pretty cool. And like, you know, I, I kind of fangirled a little, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, you've, you know, you know me, I've worked in, I've worked in the events industry. I've worked in professional sports, so I don't get, you know, too hyped when I come in contact with people, but it was, it was just yeah, a cool I, I think moment. what's funny yeah. to me is that the names you'll message me of who you're like working an event with are like, <laughs> I'm not sure if we're allowed to say, but like a lot of times no. really big names <laughs> and you know, sometimes they give you a little behind the scenes gossip and I'd say you're a pretty cynical guy when it comes to celebrities. So for me to see you be like a bit fangirly around John Schuster <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, I mean, it was fun. And, you know, yeah. so we talked, I talked to him for a little bit about, you know, the club that we have in Richmond and all that, um, you know, introduced him to my wife. So we got pictures of us with the, you know, with the gold medal. So that was really, that was really cool. Yeah. You got to hold the gold medal, didn't you? Yeah, I did. It was awesome. I told him I wasn't going to put it on because I, I thought it was kind of like, you know, touching the Stanley Cup. You know, I'm not worthy to put it around my neck, but I'll sit there and hold it if he tells me to hold it. So that was fine. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and so how big was the crowd there? Um, It wasn't like it wasn't packed, but one, it wasn't really publicized that well because the Orlando Curling Club guys even told us, even told me, um, you know, Disney kind of came to them a day before and said, hey, we're doing this. Can you get a group together to come to it? Um, oh, Rando. So was it mostly yeah. Orlando Curling Club people or was it? It 
it was mostly people who had no idea that this thing was going to happen. Uh, so it was mostly people who were having dinner at ESPN Club, and then there were a few people who were there because they had heard about it. There was a, there was one guy who was getting a broom signed by him, uh, and then there was a big table of Orlando Curling Club people. So the number of people who knew that it was happening was pretty low, I think. But it was really cool. Yeah. When people started gathering around. Once they started doing their little radio show thing, people started gathering around and, you know, asking him questions. Uh, most people were asking, you know, you know, people who don't really know what curling is were asking him, like, what's all the yelling about or why do you do this or that? So, you know, that was, that was interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how long he and the rest of the team can sustain that uh, media bounce, right? Like, to me, I, I, I'm not have, not being in the U.S., but had a lot of non-curling friends message me about it who, like, never asked me anything about curling before. It's I think there actually are kind of oddly household names now, right? Or, like... Yeah, especially him and... Matt, I mean, Matt Hamilton's going to be a household name because uh, he, he was kind of getting that way even before the main competition started because he was there for mixed doubles and you had a full day where there was just mixed doubles curling and nothing else going on with the Olympics. So people saw him and saw the stash and he kind of became a cult hero right then and there. And then they win the, they win the gold. So I'd say that John and Hamilton are going to be your two kind of media darlings. So um, where would you put this like in terms of Olympic gold medal fame like I, I there, are there still probably less than a figure skater right like a Tara Lipinski or something or oh yeah yeah less than not on the figure skating or gymnastics level but I think that the I think the story is what's really pushing you know this media the the media tour that they've been on is is John's story and the story of all four of these guys um so I think that's why they've really become, you know, a big media success uh, here since winning the gold medal. Um, it, it sounds like they're kind of winding their their tour down, uh, especially as the summer months start, mainly because, you know, they've been on it sounds like they've been on the road nonstop almost since they won the gold. Like, I think John was there uh, on vacation with his family because he did the interview. He's wearing his magic band, which you have to have to, you basically use it as your key, as your uh, ticket to get into all the parks. And it's even your key for your hotel room. So he's sitting there wearing his magic band, just like everyone else who's there to go to Disney. So that was kind of funny to me. <laughs> um, so yeah, he was just there on vacation. I don't know. Um, you know, Disney probably had him in to, to do this. Um, but yeah, yeah. I think they're. I think it's finally winding down, and they can at least have a normal summer. I hope. Um, and then we saw, uh, which we'll get into more later, that Tyler George is going to kind of step away from competitive curling and kind of focus on uh, growing the game and being a, a sport, a spokesman for the sport, which is good because I love listening to Tyler talk about curling because he's a really interesting interview. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see all of that. Uh, I, I think, first of all, I imagine like Schuster obviously gets into any spiel he wants now. <laughs> so, yeah. And so it'll be interesting to see what kind of on-ice thing the rest of Team Schuster does. And then, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Ty George uh, kind of morphs into kind of off-ice, right? There's, there's definitely 
both a need at kind of the grassroots level for that kind of an ambassador, but there's probably like if curling's going to break through in the US TV market, you probably need someone to be the John Madden for lack of a better analogy of yeah. of curling, like an American successful athlete who can do the color stuff and has enough personality to to make the broadcast interesting. I think Ty's got got all that, right? He's good uh, just because he's he's really good at talking to you about curling and articulating what things are going on from the interviews I've heard with him. I mean, the person everyone's waiting for is just everyone's going to be waiting for Matt Hamilton to retire whenever that is because I think he'd be absolutely perfect for it. Yeah, but what's Matt? He's like he's got like twenty years. He's young. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's got he's got a way he can be. You know, he can be doing mixed doubles until uh, until I'm 60, probably. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it, and it'll be interesting to see what happens there. So, yeah, so with the season wrapping up, I guess the one big event that happened since our last podcast was the Champions Cup. Yep, and, and uh, Team Schuster was actually not at the Champions Cup because John Schuster had to go to a state dinner. Winslet has a has a curler ever missed a slam because they had to go to a state dinner at the White House? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the things he kind of joked about during the, the Q&A. He had a couple of good lines. Uh, there was that one, and then uh, the other good line he had was that so they asked him, uh, about the next Olympics, uh, and they said, "What's it take going to take to go to a fifth Olympics?" And John said, uh, "I don't know. The USCA keeps changing the rules every four years to keep me out." Ouch! <laughs> <laughs> so casting a bit of shade there at the USCA. Yeah, so there, there were a good four or five people in that room who knew how funny that was. So that was good. Uh, so yeah, so Team Schuster was not at the Champions Cup. Uh, Greg Persinger was there as the men's uh, na- uh, U.S. national champion. Uh, he beat Brad Jacobs and Reed Carruthers uh, and made the playoffs. Uh, Jamie Sinclair was there representing the U.S. on the women's side. She actually went 4-0 and in the round robin. Uh, but So her story got eclipsed because the person that she faced in the quarterfinals was Rachel Homan. And Rachel Holman uh, beat Jamie Sinclair in the quarters and then went on to win the Champions Cup. Uh, And this was a month after going 0-4 at the players. So a real reversal of fortune there for for Rachel Holman showing, you know, if you thought that that she was going to be taking a step back or that she was vulnerable, uh, you know, that is not the case because she went and, and captured another uh, Grand Slam title by winning the Champions Cup. Yeah, so I, I, and I guess the other thing that's happened on that front is they've announced they're sticking together at least for next year. That was year. the other big thing, yep. Presumably for the quad. So the, I guess there was a lot of, you know, at the very least gossiping or kind of, questioning going on whether that team would break up but uh they've basically decided to stick together yeah not only are they staying together but they are thriving again so i mean that that has to be a good feeling right after having the disappointment at the olympics after going zero and four in your first time you know on you know the big stage coming back from the olympics and then to come back and 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 win the event uh, going into the off season, I mean that's got to be, you know, indescribable for that team, right? Uh, it's a bit. It's a good bit of a bounce. Um, bounce back. 
I, I was talking to a friend of mine. Where I'm going to hope to try and get her on the podcast at some point, uh, Lisa Farnell, who grew up in Ontario, is just a bit older than Holman. And the point she made to me after the Olympics is every single time, at least Holman, that, that uh, makes a kind of big event, she actually has historically struggled the first time then figures it out and then just destroys the second time. And she said that goes all the way back to juniors, apparently. First time she went to uh, junior nationals, struggled. Second time, kind of steamrolled. First time she went to the world, struggled. Second time, kind of steamrolled, right? First time at a Scotty's, didn't yeah. do well. Second time, no problem. So it, it could be that that's a pattern that's kind of played out throughout her career. And if she sticks with that team and they all kind of are fully committed for another quad, um, they're certainly going to be in the mix of teams kind of three and a half years out that we're looking at as a contender. I, like, I, I, I would be beyond stunned. They don't make the Canadian Olympic trials and they'd probably oh, yeah. be a favorite then still. So, and then I think Sinclair is kind of interesting too. I think they've clearly had kind of a late season breakout, right? They didn't quite, yeah. you know, punch it through for the Olympics, but, um, you know, getting to the worlds, getting to and, and kind of doing pretty well. They're making a good playoff run, winning a slam, and then kind of getting qualifying for the playoffs in the next slam shows that they're starting to play at that elite kind of top ten level. So they could be, yeah. they could probably carry that over into next season as the, well. The right? trials, the trials in December, that team seemed like they weren't quite ready for prime time, um, but they were so close to making it, and then. You know, maybe the pressure being off from not being the Olympic team, they were able to just kind of figure it out. And then, yeah, they they had a great performance at the World Championships, of course, winning a, a Grand Slam event and then starting off 4-0 at the Champions Cup. Although, like you said last time, this is kind of the Pro Bowl, so maybe don't put too much into how any team did, good or bad, at the Champions Cup. But, um you know, starting out four and zero at the Champions Cup—that's a pretty good win streak in terms of uh, Grand Slam games until losing in the quarters to Homan. Yeah, I think even a year, a year and a half ago, right? Uh, U.S. teams would almost say they're just happy to be there and put in a good showing. And it's interesting now that even within the last, I'd say, year and a half at Slams, consistently U.S. teams are punching through to playoff mm-hmm. stuff, right? So. Uh, so I, yeah. I, I think next quad is going to be interesting. You know, are we going to, you know, we'll, we'll probably see for sure Schuster and Sinclair carry for it, but there's no, there's not a reason why the U.S. doesn't have another one or two teams on each gender side also kind of regularly qualifying for slams and making the playoffs too. So when they talk about the gap narrowing between Canada and the rest of the world, I mean, that's definitely happened this last cycle, but uh, even in the slams now, it's going to be probably harder and harder for Canadian teams to, to hold on to those slots too. It, I, I don't know about maybe saying that the that the gap is closed. I mean, teams every kind. I think you know you've had five or six countries that have had solid curling programs with solid curling teams. I just think now those countries are getting deeper. Now Canada is still the deepest by far. If you're going to go one through ten, but if you go one through three. I think that the the gap has has narrowed, um, but I think if you were just looking at the top one, I don't I don't I don't think there's been that much of a of a difference in the gap between now and say four years ago. But I would say that other countries are getting deeper. 
think, well, so as it is to say one through three, because that's coincidentally or not coincidentally the number of teams that most Olympic programs fund, right? Like most of the countries yep. gunning for a medal try to fund two to three teams of each gender. They don't want to put all their chips in, in one, uh, on one team. So the, you basically have nationally funded pro teams now from a lot of countries. I, I'd still say there's been a bit of a narrowing of the gap. Like, like to me, you could legitimately say that Nicholas Adin on the men's side was the best team of this quad. And I think that's the first yeah. time you could say that a non-Canadian team was the best in the world over a four-year cycle. And I think that's that in of itself is a pretty um, significant thing. If you just go back to slams even five years ago, non-Canadian teams really struggled uh, even to make the playoffs or win games. And that that's not the case anymore, right? Yeah, and the the slams have kind of been kind of, it, that's kind of been a reason for that, right? And you kind of look it's the same way uh, if you look at soccer in CONCACAF in where where the United States is, uh, the MLS has helped the United States, but the MLS has also helped, you know, countries like Costa Rica in getting their players um you know, more playing experience against top level talent. And that wound up actually coming to bite the U.S. Uh, the last uh, the last World Cup qualifying. And you saw the U.S. fail to qualify. And a lot of that is you have all of this talent from countries facing the United States and CONCACAF being able to play in the MLS. So it's, it's helping build uh, that sport in the United States but then it turned around and, and hurt them on the national level. And maybe the slams are doing the same to Canada in curling? Uh, maybe. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, right? So uh, I think clearly if you talk to national coaches in the U.S. and Scotland and the rest of Europe, they want their Olympic teams or kind of Olympic level teams qualifying for slams, earning enough order of merit points to get into slams, playing there, doing mm -hmm. well to raise their game. I think the slams are kind of deliberately left open based on the, the order of merit system. Um, but it, it's kind of an interesting question of what happens if you get to the point where more than half or two thirds of the slams are not Canadian teams. Is Canada going to be willing to, yeah. to put up with to that, right? What happens to uh, TV ratings on Sportsnet and, or well, on Sportsnet's the ones who have the slam. So yeah, what happens to TV ratings on Sportsnet if that's the case? Yeah, I mean that's that's question number one. Like, are Canadians going to tune in to watch a Korean team play a, a Dutch team or something, right? Which is not that far away from being a realistic yeah. possibility. Uh, and then. Um, the flip side of it is, is maybe eventually at some point, and I think this is going to be the interesting thing to see what's going to happen with this new World Curling Federation um, World Series of Curling, is do these quality of events also start to get spread around the globe? And so then does it become a case that you have um, maybe a European tour that's really on par with the Canadian tour and major TV events based for kind of teams based in Europe. And then it's, it's almost like golf where you've got your European pro curling tour, North American pro curling tour, and then maybe three, four major events a year that bring uh, bring everyone in, right? Same, same thing in the yeah. Asia Pacific too. So it, I was about to say, be... I think it'd be more likely to happen on the Asia Pacific side just because of what, the, what TV ratings look like um, 
over there uh, for curling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if China, Korea, Japan can get TV and money enough to put on, they already have events there, but kind of make it its own big circuit that's like 80, 70, 75, 80% Asian teams, 25% kind of North American teams rolling through. Um, you'll probably see a big jump in quality of play there and uh, kind of perhaps that becomes a rival to the Canadian slams. So yeah, I think things to watch out for. So and on top of like what's going to happen with the events, I guess the other big thing is all the team changes and you sent me a spreadsheet with 30, we had 35 teams. We had one more, we had, we had one more event uh, in North America, right? An event oh, that's kind of near oh. and dear to our hearts. Oh, yeah. Okay. So what, you want to talk about the Arena Nats? Arena Absolutely. Nationals? So if you're listening to this in Canada, you have no idea what this is. Uh, Arena Nationals is a U.S. <clears throat> a U.S. national championship for clubs like the one I'm in here in Richmond, Virginia, and the one that you and I were founding members of in Oklahoma City, where you curl on hockey ice, and it's, you know, it's a separate national championship for clubs that, you know, have trouble getting ice time, um, you know, have, don't have the advantages that come with uh, having a dedicated club, uh, but at least giving you a chance to compete for a national championship. And Jonathan, I believe you were kind of involved in this becoming a thing that exists. Yeah. So when I was on the U.S. Curling Association board from 2010 to 2013, and uh, so I was representing what was at that point in time was called the at-large region, which was basically everywhere in the U.S. that didn't really have long-standing dedicated curling clubs. So technically, I represent the largest region in the U.S. <laughs> um, and but there weren't that many clubs, but they were mostly arena clubs. And by the time I got on the board, I think there were about forty or fifty arena clubs at that point in time, just popping up everywhere, and it really been big growth in the arena curling sector from 2006 on. Uh, so this, these are kind of, well, you're playing in one down in Virginia. You mentioned another one down in Orlando. We know each other from Oklahoma, Texas. Places you would think have never had curling before were really popping off. And so one of the complaints was that, okay, I'm in an arena curling club. How do I, you know, a lot of people showing up right now seeing John Schuster, Ty George, and they're thinking, well, how do I get to the Olympics? Like people, people want their kind of path to glory too. And the jump from the jump, I would say, from even a competitive arena curler to someone who's able to compete at what would be the next tier in U.S. curling, which is the club championships, quite large. Because you know, if, if you're a dedicated club, you can go out and throw rocks, get access to coaching, all of that relatively easily. But if you're an arena club, you basically show up, play your game, probably get in somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 24 games a year. Is that about right for you, Ryan? Yeah, that's yeah, that's right on the money. Yeah, and maybe maybe a bond spiel versus someone who's a really keen curler to dedicated club, they could probably start picking up three, four games a week. They, there's always ice open kind of throughout the week at most clubs for practice, and there's probably a lot more resources for coaching. That's just not feasible given how arena clubs are set up. So this was basically set up to give arena curlers a chance to play in a national championship. So the, I'm not sure what the format is now. I've kind of lost touch with it a bit. But at that point in time, the idea was, um, 
what we have our first year was it 16 men's teams and 16 first, women's year teams right uh the first the first year we were in fort wayne indiana yes i remember that because i was exhausted <laughs> because in the interim of setting that up i'd also been contacted about a job in england and that's kind of what pulled me over here so i actually had to move house and drive with you <laughs> yep from oklahoma to fort wayne then fly from fort wayne uh, up to Minneapolis and then on my way to, to Europe pretty quickly after that. So I was a total mess. So I was running net basically you can move across a move continent and help organize a major bond speed or major national championship at the same time. But it's a very, very bad idea to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> you do not recommend this. I don't recommend it. I, re- I remember on the Tuesday, just being totally exhausted and kind of lying in bed, but not being able to get out of bed like all day kind of thing. Uh, but it was a lot of fun. And I, I think what was cool about it was a bunch of people met each other from all across the country and they were all facing similar challenges and didn't really think about that. And so there's actually a lot of sharing of knowledge about how to run arena clubs, where to spiel. A lot of people kind of made friends doing that. Yeah. Uh, it was it was honestly like an arena curling convention slash group therapy in addition to being a national championship. So that, that first one was really cool. Yeah, and I think that, that was one of the things we kind of put into the program early on is we wanted it to not just be a bond spiel. So how do you do that in addition to calling it a national championship? So we made sure there were clocks. We made sure there were timekeepers. We had... Uh, head umpire and a couple of assistant umpires. We had everything was done to USCA national championship standard on purpose because we wanted to give the championship experience to arena curlers. And then on top of that, the other thing we did is we put on some events off ice as the event was going on. So we had we brought in um, Sandra McMacken, who's one of the top coaches in the U.S., and she put on some kind of curling coaching clinics. And she, actually, one of the, the cool things we did is we had put on as a prize, kind of we, as a fundraiser, we raffled off the chance for her to watch and videotape a team's game, then give them feedback afterwards. So that was kind of a cool experience for the team that won. Uh, she also kind of put on a few sessions, a strategy session and kind of a team building session for teams that could attend. And we also had some kind of club growth and development sessions, kind of how do you how do you build and develop your club? So that's what it was the first year. And it's been going ever since, uh, ever since I left. So I assume it's bigger now. And you've been to a few more since. Yeah, it is, uh, it is moved from being something where you could show up middle of the week uh, and curl on the weekend. Uh, when we did it in Fort Wayne, there was an A qualifier and a B qualifier uh, to get your four semifinalists. And then after you lost twice, then they you spilled down into a consolation bracket, so you were guaranteed three games, basically. Um, so that got you. Now it's pool play, uh, so you're guaranteed four games. But like a regular national, like any other national championship, in the U.S. and Canada, you're having to commit a full week where you're basically having to go in the Saturday before you're there all week. If you make it to the championship, uh, you're not getting out of there until the next Sunday night. So in that way, it's kind of burdensome because if you're an arena curler who's only curling, like you said, 25 times a year, is it really worth spending five days of paid leave uh, to go to this national championship. So 
that's kind of the the conversation that we're having at the club level now it's great that this even exists uh, and it's interesting going to this national championship everyone there is so happy to be there and so happy that this event exists but every one of them hopes that this is their last time having to be at this event because you're building and hoping to get your own dedicated facility so that you no longer qualify for arena nationals so in that way it's kind of interesting you're all you love being there and you hope you never go back uh but as long as you you know have arena ice you know you're very happy that this event exists yeah i think that's just a good thing right i think that like every sport has to have some kind of pyramid structure to it right and Mm -hmm. to me part of what sustains the elite curling is the fact that non-elite curlers feel they have a path to play in meaningful games that makes them want to do that sport yes and the, the other thing this does is not as you're kind of pointing out it's not just for the players at that level but it's actually also for the clubs that the clubs see this as here's something that a new arena club can enter. And even at the club, like one of the things that we, we insisted on is that each club figure out some way to competitively select their team. So most clubs either build the process into their league structure or some mm-hmm. clubs actually arrange playoffs. But it's every single club's got to kind of work around that issue. But then the clubs, like you say, all want to graduate out of arena curling and become dedicated curling. And hopefully the resources there kind of help them at least partly to do that. So... Yeah, and so the so this event continues to grow, and there are good things and bad things about that. Um, and before we talk about the good things about this year's nationals, I do want to kind of point out the one negative thing that uh, that I have about this event. So last year, I was very happy to see the Oklahoma women, uh, including four players that. I've known and curled with and loved seeing watch improve year after year at this event. They went out and they won the darn thing. So Oklahoma won a national, Oklahoma curling won a national championship, and that was a huge deal. But as this event has grown, the selection process has had to get to the point where you're you're trying to include clubs that maybe haven't been there before. Yeah. So this year in Salt Lake City. Oklahoma was not invited, either on the men's or the women's side. Now, it used to be where if you were taking both teams, you were basically guaranteed a spot. Not so this year. Now, I will be the first to say that those of us who played on the men's side didn't always perform up to snuff, especially when you compare to how well the women were doing each year making the playoffs. Um, so, not inviting the national champion, the defending champion, and not allowing them to defend their title, I I didn't agree with that at all. Even if you're just inviting the Oklahoma women and telling the Oklahoma men's side, you know, not this year, um, that I would have been fine with that. But I don't think you can have a legitimate national championship where the defending champion is not invited even after, you know, applying to take part in the event. I think when you're getting to that point, then it's almost it's time to start thinking about having regional playdowns uh, in order to qualify for this event, which brings on a whole new host of headaches, including as a you know club level curler, 
that's even more paid time off that I'm having to devote to curling instead of devoting to my family and going on vacations, uh, you know, and, and being able to, to, to be away from work uh, and having to, to spend that uh, just on curling. Yeah, I don't know. That's, a, that's kind of an interesting question. I, I think we spend a lot of time haggling about format and uh, I'm not on the committee anymore. So obviously the different people around the committee had different thoughts, but, but I was actually pretty adamant at the time that the event, I think we went Thursday through Sunday, but basically exactly yeah. the point you're making. And so, I mean, I, I see that kind of everywhere in grassroots curling, where if you push the demands for an event, any event really from like your, your local beer spiel, like to, to any kind of competitive play down thing, much beyond if you push it beyond a three-day weekend that kind of gets people dropping out i think two days off work people can swing as long as it's easy to get to but once once you get into kind of taking a full week off and people only get you know most jobs in the u.s only get two weeks paid vacation a year right are you going to spend half of your vacation time on a curling event so yeah to me that that's kind of problem one's that but the the advantage of the double knock was that it was quick Right, you could, yep. you could. Um, it was really a triple knock. You were guaranteed three. You guaranteed three. Like the double knock was for the champion, and then the yep. the the third game kind of guaranteed you a consolation event, and there was a consolation event to play in. Um, so in a certain sense, it probably doesn't feel like a, a round robin format like you have at at other national events, but it's quick and like you said it's, it makes it more accessible for the players right so i mean my default for these kinds of events would be to, to figure out a format where uh you're getting as many teams as possible and, I, and i'm not sure how what the entries are at right now but are in the 30 to 40 range for each gender then or probably because i think they took uh i'd have to look, hang on i can look up the pools while we're talking um but yeah, but then you look at, say, club nationals here in the United States, um, and you think of how much, like, if I were to go and qualify uh, from GNCC for a for, for club nationals, the amount of PTO that I would have to spend to go to regional playdowns, and then if I qualified, then go to the club national championship, because the club national championship is another one of those Saturday to the next Sunday events where you're there, you're having to at least take five days of PTO, and then however much I would have had to spend to go to the GNCC playdowns. Um, you know, it's but it, it's, it's a good problem to have. It's good to see that this event has grown to the point that you're having to tell good teams no. But I don't know. I, I, I think in this case, I don't know. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Now, I am very, very biased because that's my former club. I don't know. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way that the defending champion wasn't allowed to go. Yeah. I'll, the one thing I will say, having been on the committee, is no matter what you do, you get hate. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like that's, we, we had that, all kinds of I complaints, right? So the, 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 like the people organizing it, they're, they're probably stuck with a number of different choices every single one of which has a pretty serious trade-off it's going to piss somebody off but yeah to me i'm kind of like to me i guess it's a good problem the fact a the fact it's still going because honestly the first year when we we're launching it we had no idea if it would work it was it was very touch and go to be honest kind of i remember february march time there's a bit of talk about do we pull the plug on this but then once the entries started rolling in we're like okay we're fine um but uh 
the fact is still going what now five years later and the problems are too many teams want to do it tells me that at least it's kind of on the right path and so it's more a question of how would you tweak that event going forward but definitely i'd kind of endorse your the host clubs got to get an entry in because that's the incentive to hosting and then yeah i'd say the defending championship clubs should also get uh, a slot and then i guess it's really just a matter of what you can do logistically with the facilities available the cost and your budget right so so it looks like they split it up by region the men there were 20 teams the women there were only 15 so you so men four pools of five women three pools of five and on the women's side uh like hollywood curling club had two teams so yeah on the I, I, yeah okay so so somehow they ended up getting a couple more teams than than probably whatever. just because they didn't have enough uh, requests for teams from Mopac yeah okay so that's interesting yeah interesting interesting yeah so I mean you never really know what the whole story is from there but yeah I think you know it could be that the second Hollywood team was added as a late scratch maybe they went back to Oklahoma and by the yeah. time they've been declined they couldn't they couldn't accept the spot you, you never really know what goes on with it after the initial kind of round goes through so yeah it's too bad they didn't get to defend their title but 35 teams is that's it's, pretty good for arena curling in the United States. It's pretty good for arena curling in the United States. Yep. And it's actually good to see, I, I like to think of it as clubs graduating out of there and getting to the dedicated game, right? Yep. So yep. kind of moving I, their way up that pyramid. Uh, like, you yep. know, Denver's not in there anymore. Is, yeah. My understanding is this was the last go-round for Pittsburgh Curling Club. Um, and Mark Robinson has always been good out of Pittsburgh. They've always put forth a quality team. Uh, at least on the on the men's side, uh, the women's side as well. Uh, and this year on the men's side, some people we know, uh, and you from the from the Maca region, uh, which is where Oklahoma's from. Uh, the Dallas Fort Worth Curling Club with Nick Myers and and all those guys won another national title. I know they won a couple of years ago uh, in Cedar Rapids. Uh, so this is another national title for DFW. They also, by the way. Uh, went to club nationals and against a you know a field of mostly if not all but them uh, dedicated curling clubs finished third made the playoffs and finished third at regular club nationals so that was you know I was pretty proud of that as an arena curler uh, so they won on the men's side uh, some people we know from going to the Kansas City bond spiel made the final Kansas City however lost to Cleveland uh, the Cleveland skating club uh, in the championship on the women's side. So a good representation there by the by the MACA region. So I was glad to see that. Yeah, so they're kind of... So is this their second or third title? For Dallas? Oh, gosh, I don't remember. I think it's the... I think second. Okay, I don't remember. So they're uh, they're kind of like the rem- Cowboys when they were good in the 90s. They're kind of... Yeah, bas- yeah, yeah, basically. I don't remember if they won last year or not. Last year was in Notre Dame. was at South Bend. Yeah. I can't remember if they won because I know they won in Cedar Rapids and I know they lost in Westchester. Yeah. Uh, but I don't remember if they won last year in, at Notre Dame or not. Yeah. So uh, it's Nick. It's Jeff. Not Jeff. Yep. Not skipping. I assume. Uh, I think. I think Jeff was skipping, and I think because I didn't get to see any of the games because I was on vacation. Uh, but if they did the same thing from when they played at club nationals, it was Jeff skipping, Nick Myers throwing fourth stones, and then Kevin Robertson, Lath Sando uh, on the team as well. Okay. 
That's a good. That's a solid. That's a solid arena curling team. Yeah, that's no, a good arena curling team. So, and they'll probably be back for a few more years, and hopefully one day Dallas will. Uh, Hopefully one day they'll get ice. dedicated ice and they go away. Won't, they, won't, they won't be able to, to dominate like this. So anymore. is it a good fundraiser for like your dedicated facility if you're like trashing everyone at Arena Nats that everyone wants to give money to your club building fund to get you out of there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Pass the hat and get us out of this tournament. Maybe that's what DFW should do next year in Westchester. <laughs> Hopefully I'll be in Westchester next year and I'll contribute to that to get them out of there. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so nope. something else that we saw with u.s curling um you know we saw a lot of team changes basically everywhere else and then we saw that uh kind of sneak over into the u.s side and kind of late in the game and kind of a surprise tyler george cho- choosing to step away from uh competitive curling so he's leaving Team Schuster to kind of focus on personal life, and he said uh, in his post on social media that he was kind of going to focus on helping grow the game, and Chris Plies is going to move from Heater McCormick's team uh, and play, I assume, slip into Tyler's spot and play third for for Team Schuster. What did you think of that? Uh, So... Well, part of me is like, it's a big shock, right? Because probably yeah. a team at that level can, like, you know, like the Jacobs team basically spent the last quad going around uh, being the, you know, Olympic gold medal team. And I think that kind of gets you into any bond spiel you want, probably gets you a lot of sponsorship. And my my thought was that probably that's what Team Schuster was going to do. But the, I can mm-hmm. see the flip side too, right? If Ty's kind of like what what more is there to do in your curling career than win a gold medal right so maybe he's doing yep. the the first jordan or i guess second jordan retirement thing and going out on top right <laughs> like what more can you do than beat nicodine in the olympics get your gold medal and then go on kind of a massive u.s wide curling tour for three months right so yep. so to me that maybe that's completely sensible and you never know with someone what's going on in their personal life uh, what's going on um, kind of with their body. Like are they starting to kind of have some kind of nagging injuries that's making it tough to spiel every weekend or, or maybe they just want to do something else or maybe goal accomplished. And for some people, once they accomplish the big goal in curling, going back and playing at a lower level just doesn't light the fire, right? Like what's the point of playing even kind of on tour after you've got the high of winning a gold medal. So it's hard to tell kind of what's going into his mind, but uh, kind of I wish him the best of luck. And actually I think yeah. he'll be a really good ambassador for the game. I think, you know, he's I always so been too. kind of like that at the grassroots level in, in Minnesota. And the game really got kind of in the U.S. at least kind of really needs someone like that who's got a name recognition, who's willing to go out there and help promote the game, put on clinics, help clubs, kind of have a celebrity there to kind of attract a crowd, go on TV. And I think he'll kind of fit in well in that role. And you look at like all these charity bond spiels, it seems like he's almost at every single one of them. Yeah. So I, I'm not sure if he's, what his role is. The the kind of original one in the U.S. is the House of Hearts in Duluth, yep. right? And so he certainly always participated in that and I'm sure was kind of had a hand on the organizing side in some way, shape or form. And so there's been a lot of these other celebrity bond spiels or charity bond spiels that have popped up over the years on a similar model and certainly you know doing that 
it probably would take up an entire curling calendar now. So, And then uh, Chris Plies is going to step in for him. Chris is a former world junior champion who, since moving on to, since, you know, aging out of juniors, has had, you know, hits and misses with teams. Uh, this is a team he's familiar with because he was John Schuster's alternate at the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver and even got to play a few games there. So, I don't know, is this going to rejuvenate, is this going to restart the uh, Chris Plies's, uh career moving on and, and playing with John Schuster? Or how do you think, that's, how do you think that dynamic's going to work? I mean, it's tough to tell with team dynamics. and I know watching curling on TV, you see how the players react to each other, but part of me can kind of put a bit of caution into reading everything that you see on camera as being a complete mm-hmm. representation of what's going on with that team kind of everywhere else, right? So it's tough to know with, you know, it's all, to me, I'm kind of, the team dynamic stuff, it's really hard to know what's going on unless you're somehow involved in that team or, or close enough to it to get get a bit of dirt. But to my mind, it makes a lot of sense. Like you're, you, I assume Schuster and his team sat down after Ty told them, and they basically put together a shopping list. And I'm sure Chris Plies was pretty close to the top, if not the top. If you think of it as basically not quite a draft, but I guess a mix of a draft and free agency, they probably thought we're looking for a third. Who's the best third in the U.S. that's that's eligible? And he's he kind of slots in pretty well as a third, right? Great shot maker. Yep. Um, strong sweeper, a lot of international competitive experience. So you're not really. And he's another Duluth guy, right? So a Duluth guy, right? So I assume they know each other pretty well. So you know, again, yeah, that's yeah. one of those things I don't really know. Not close enough to the team to know, you know, how tight they are. But I assume they wouldn't pick up someone they hated. So yeah, uh, you were a, you were a Twin Cities guy, so they they probably wouldn't have taken very kindly to you. They probably would have been looking. Yeah, it seems like that's a other than Hamilton, that's a very Duluth centric team, right? Uh, yeah, I think, yeah, and Duluth, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Like, there's the, in Minnesota, Curling, there's Duluth, there's the Iron Range, which is its own weird thing, and then there's the <laughs> Twin Cities now. And when I was there, like, it was St. Paul and nothing else, right? And uh, now you've got, what, five dedicated clubs there? So I, I imagine Twin Cities has got its own thing going, but Duluth in northern Minnesota, it's probably historically where the strongest kind of competitive curlers have come out of. St. Paul was kind of always branded itself as more of a social club. And they, they did a lot of things there to kind of foster the social side of the game. There's, there certainly are kind of good competitive curlers that come out, out of there, like John Benton and, and Rich Ruinen. But um, there was definitely a Duluth-Twin Cities rivalry. I remember I was up at one spiel on the Iron Range, and a guy called me a 6-1 tour. You know what a 6-1 <laughs> tour is? Uh, is I is that the uh, area code for the Twin Cities? It's the area code for Minneapolis, and being a six-one tour if you're a ranger is not a good thing. <laughs> I yeah, I can't imagine. <laughs> yeah, so and it kind of implied that from being from down there meant you weren't as good a curler either. So, oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, there's there's definitely that, a there's definitely a north-south rivalry in Minnesota curling for sure. Is that kind of like the Toronto Ottawa thing too? Yeah, or Montreal, Toronto. It's like, you know, it's like any... One of my lines to my students is always, people are always against 
basically people always hate the people the next place over, right? So when I was in Oklahoma, <laughs> people hated Texas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, and Tulsa. Oh, yeah. Wisconsin. And, well, Oklahoma and Tulsa and Dallas. Yeah. Oklahoma City versus Tulsa and Dallas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or in this country, it's Scotland, England, right? They hate <laughs> Yep. So... Yeah, and so Wales is just kind of there tipping them back and watching and watching you two. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wales is doing its own thing. Um, but yeah, not the only team change since this was uh, the end of the quad, as they say. Uh, lots of team changes. Yeah, so you sent me the spreadsheet, um, and it's got in Canada. Yeah, where do you even want to begin? Thirty-five teams you put down here. I this, don't know if you want to go through all of just, them. Those are just the major ones that I put down in the little spreadsheet that I sent to you. I mean, if you really want to see, like, every team change, go to Curling Geek. Um, and his is kind of like a flow chart that makes it really easy to see how teams formed. Um, but so what was interesting to me is on the women's side you almost saw this consolidation in manitoba and ontario and now those two provincial championships are going to be kind of super difficult whereas on the men's side they kind of evenly distributed themselves is that what you kind of see from from what happened so yeah it's interesting i I think well, okay, the one thing I would say is there's been a lot of movement towards Saskatchewan, which is interesting. Um, we talk about that a bit in a second. But I, and I think this has kind of been building for a little while on the men's side in Canada is that the kind of top 10-ish teams each are trying to kind of stake out a province. So maybe only have two, at most maybe three, kind of elite, elite teams in a given province. And some provinces are kind of for lack of a better term, auto-birth provinces, right? The classic one being <laughs> Newfoundland Labrador with Gushu yep. basically winning that for a decade plus. And other provinces, to me, the, the classics, Alberta is just a bloodbath province where, you know, a it team used like to be Cooley, not so much anymore, I don't think. Now, not since Kevin Martin retired, but yeah, that yeah. used to really be a bloodbath province. Yeah, I mean, you think about a team like Cooey, and Cooey couldn't get to the Briar until his mid 30s, right? <laughs> it's going to get past yeah. Kevin Martin and Randy Furby. So, I, I, you know, I, I think there's perhaps a bit of strategic picking out what province you want to play down in um, now. Uh, I'm not sure how much they discussed that, but. You know, in some sense, it makes a, a bit of sense, right? To, to think, what's your easiest path to the briar? Where are the best resources? Where can you kind of base everything? And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if one of the things that comes out of this quad then is that you have greater parity between the provinces in the sense that basically every province now will have a slam quality team playing out of it. Maybe not the East Coast yet, aside from Newfoundland, Labrador, but. Um, you know, certainly Quebec's got a possibility there. Ontario's already locked in. Northern Ontario, the rest will have kind of one or two elite, elite teams and uh, kind of go from there, I guess. And you saw in, in Manitoba, the two main teams there have consolidated as you have, you know, the, as they said, the, the frenemies have, have linked up. Mike McEwen's going to play with, with Reed Carruthers. Uh, Mike's going to throw fourth. Reed's going to skip and throw third. Um, Mike's going to have to sweep. So that'll be fun. Although I guess he's, you know, he's played doubles with, with Don for a while. So, 
so I guess we've we've sort of seen Mike sweep at least at the at least at the Continental Cup. But what what kind of change do you think that's going to be for him? And is it going to work out for him to kind of take you know take that out of it where he's just, he, all he has to do is make shots now, right? I to me of the big shakeup teams, that's the one that I think has the most upside. Like that, that's the one where as soon as I saw it, and said that actually makes sense. Like a lot of people sort of seemed a bit skeptical, but. If it's a, and I'm sure they talked about it, but it seems to me like the think the thought process was, for lack of a better term, let's split the cognitive load, right? And I'm not, so, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm surprised that more of the elite teams don't do this in the sense that skipping actually demands a lot of your thought process, just from like a neuroscience perspective, and throwing last procs also does. And that one of the things that's weird about it is it actually demands two very different mental tasks, mm-hmm. and so. It might make a lot of sense for basically dividing that position up for a lot of other teams. There's certainly been success with that in the past, but you know, you take someone like like Mike McCune has been one of the best shot makers for the last quad and say all you like not all you've got to do, but your primary task now is just make the last shot. And then you have someone like Reed Carruthers who's been a top skip and says, focus primarily on that. You still have just gotta make your your shots as third, but you don't have to make the pressure shots. I think that that actually could be kind of a winning combination as long as they can get on the same page and Mike's comfortable with how Reed calls the game. And, uh, cause I think the front end's always been really strong. Like I, during the last Briar, mm-hmm. I basically said the Carruthers team to me looked like one that would dominate the next quad. I'm not sure if you remember that text I sent to you. Yeah. And that was with Muscoli oh, yeah. at third. And I'm like, well, you think the, 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 one of the very few players on the planet that would be an upgrade over Muscoli is McEwen. So I think that looks like, <laughs> In some sense, they've gotten better, I'd say. Yeah, I think we were talking during the last Briar, and it was before Reed kind of disappointed at the the end of the week, but we were both saying, oh, Reed's going to win one or two Briars before in, in this next quad because he looked like he was – we kind of said this about the Sinclair team. He's ready for prime time now, and now he's got one of the best shot, ma- shot makers, if not the best shot maker on the planet, uh, throwing forth rocks for him. So that's going to be interesting to see. The team that I like, uh, and we kind of disagree on this, is I think that the Cooey team – I think that this team is better for Kevin Cooey than the previous team was. And the reason for that is it kind of goes back to it was the previous quad when he had Carter and Pat and those guy and Nolan Thiessen, uh as his as his team and he was kind of he was the leader he was Coo Dog and he was the one who was throwing forth rocks and then we spent this last quad with his super team and it seemed like they just overthought and overdiscussed every single shot. And I think that kind of weighs on you as a skip. So now he gets to be the skip. He gets to be the guy calling all the shots. He still has a pretty solid team. He's got the best lead maybe on the planet in Ben Hebert. Colton Flash, who's a solid sweeper. B.J. Newfeld, who brings in his experience from, from Mike McEwen's team. I just think that this team sets up better for Kevin Cooey than the last four years did. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure. Like, I, I think... So I think two things, right? First of all, this is a classic case of being careful about what you think about the team dynamics going off what you watch on TV, right? So we're not privi- mm-hmm. privileged to what the warm side of the glass stuff that goes on in that team. And 
it could very well be, and kind of some of the feedback, you know, some of the interviews and stuff I've read over the last cycle is that Cooey's actually the kind of skip who wants to hear every single option possible, talk everything through from every side, and then kind of select what the best option is, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, they, they, their coach is a sports psychologist. I'm sure they've talked about who gives input when. And, um, you know, if you've got Ben Hebert, Mark Kennedy, and Langer on your team, uh, why wouldn't you want the opinions of, like, you know, three <laughs> three world champs yeah. and two gold medalists kind of yeah. constantly feeding into you? They, I mean... And I guess kind of some people didn't like it. I, from a fan's perspective, I actually thought I'd learned the most from those games, right? Well, you do, but then they're running into clock issues at the end of all of their slam games. That's true, but I never saw them like run out of clock time. Did you? No, no, yeah. but they they were having to they were having to hurry. Yeah, so they're just kind of used to that, right? So that's yeah. the way they like to play it. And there's other skips. And actually, the funny thing is, the previous Kevin, Kevin Martin, was a lot more. This is the way it's going to be. And so I partly yep. wonder if part of the dynamics with Hebes and Kennedy was they basically spent eight years with a guy saying, I don't want input or don't want much input. And then be on a team where there's a lot of input. And they were suddenly free. <laughs> suddenly free, right? So that could have been one of the issues there. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think ultimately, I, to me, I think it's per- perhaps – not quite a lateral move. I don't think it's a total implosion, but I think we were kind of talking again. The line I said to you is it's a bit like swapping Kevin Durant for Paul George at a third spot, right? For draw boss basketball analogy, it's near and dear to the Oklahoma City heart. That you're you're taking a step down. You're going from an MVP level third in um, someone like Mark, Mark Kennedy, Kennedy to, uh, to an All Star and BJ Newfeld. Certainly still a top top third, but I think Kennedy's like automatic hall of famer top top rock thrower of his generation kind of thing and then to me actually colton flash might be might not is kind of a lateral move i think perhaps when you're thinking front end he's a bit younger so you know lang's my age and i kind of wonder how he feels kind of having to pound it out at second uh Mm -hmm. on the bond spiel circuit all the time right certainly once you hit your 40s the body doesn't recover as quickly as in your 20s and, and 30s and so as the elite game gets more competitive, you, you, I do personally start to wonder about some of the older front ends as perhaps that's, being a little bit of a liability. That's what you kind of wonder about the new Epping team, right? Because he brings in Lang and Saville, and that is an immense level of knowledge that can help, that can only help his game. But you've also added a lot of wear and tear and a lot of years to your front end. So what's the give and take there? Like, what's the you know, which one outweighs the other? Uh, I mean, I think I think it's an interesting question, right? I, to me, the issues well, the issues kind of twofold. One is you're certainly able. To, I mean, you can curl your whole life, right? But yeah. we are starting to see players at the elite level, like Gushu last year, right? And he's not he's not in his forties; he's in his mid thirties. Basically, lost a full season or three quarters of a season to a hip injury. Yep. Um, Glenn Howard can keep going into his 50s, but he's basically torn through, you know, two two of the all-time great thirds in terms of Wayne Mada and Richard Hart both having kind of serious enough injuries they don't think they can curl anymore at the elite level. So to me, the risk with Epping's not that um, 
not that, that Lang and Saville can't keep up with the top teams. I think shot making wise, if anything, their touch game is going to be better and their kind of yeah. creativity with shots is going to be great. I definitely but, agree with that. But being able to drag the rock as far, I don't know. I'm not sure about that on the front end. Uh, you know, just basic strength and conditioning does start to deteriorate in your 40s. So if you've got a top, you know, if you have prime Ben Hebert kind of front end, that's probably better than... Or Gallant and Walker. Yeah, Gallant and Walker, right? Like they're probably the top sweeping front end right now, right? You're giving up a little bit there, right? And that's, that's you know, even if it's only a foot per rock, that still kind of shrinks your margin of error per every single shot over the course of the game. And the other risk is just your body breaks down, right? I mean, and so then, yeah. then it's kind of like what kind of breakdown you're talking about. Is it a repetitive stress injury? Is it just a nagging knee or groin injury? Or is it an injury that basically you can't compete the quad, right? So can't complete the quad. So so we've had all these changes on the men's side, and I still think that the Canadian skip in Beijing is going to have the first name Brad. So despite all these changes, I think it's going to be one of the two teams that stayed together. I think it's going to, my opinion is I think it'll be Gushu or, or, uh, or Brad Jacobs, uh, in or Botcher. They stuck together. They did. Uh, and that's a very good, yeah, uh, I'm in, <laughs> that's a very, that's a very good team that definitely has the upside to be on that level. Um, four years from now okay my it's a very good team i'm gonna throw down a marker that my sneaky good team to watch out for is gunner jason gunlickson hasn't been a briar yet but uh he did add denny newfeld he did add yeah he he added denny newfeld so that's a good add but he's also in manitoba with McEwen and carruthers and brayden calvert and well McEwen and carruthers (laughs) a bunch of other consolidated I think yeah. I, I think that there's a case to be made that Gunner, through the consolidation of McEwen and Carruthers, is now clearly number two in Manitoba, and there's going to be multiple paths to the Briar. And I certainly think on any given kind of Briar qualification Sunday, it's a toss-up now between those teams. I, I think he's he's kind of in his 30s now. For years, he's been known as a great shot maker, but he's been going out on tour, getting that experience. And to me, if you look at the pieces on that team, they're all, they're a bit like what I was saying with the Carruthers team at the the Briar. He's got the right players in each spot. And uh, that to me is the team to look out to, to pop. And I think squad. I've I've heard you say before, this is kind of the age where a, where a skip comes into their own, right? Where, where Gunner's getting to right now. Yeah, I think mid mid thirties to me is when the big time skips breakthrough, and it, there's always a phenom every generation, like a Holman or a Martin, who kind of breaks through early. But you know, McEwen, same thing. Mid thirties is when he really kind of took off, being consistent top five team. Gunner's kind of at that age point and done all the hard work and paid his dues. And I think uh, even just how he throws now is a lot smoother. Like he used to. If you kind of look at classic 2010 Olympic oh, yeah. trials gunner, it was like, I'm just going to shove it and blast everything, <laughs> right? He can still throw the big weight, but it's not as much shove-centric. And he's got a lot more of a touch game and a lot more. I think he's kind of developed strategically yeah. too. So that's gunner my pick was a, for... Gunner was a curling meme before memes existed. And now, now he's kind of become a well-rounded curler. He's not the guy that you see on YouTube throwing, you know four second rocks yeah and he can still do that but he's he he's kind of built it. the rest of the game so i think he's 
if you want someone who like we're you know someone that in four years time we're like where did that team come from like that's that's the one I'd kind of pick out of the the ones in the spreadsheet. So um, on the women's side, on the women's side, uh, how amazing will the Manitoba Scotties be for the next four years? Uh, be great, I think. Um, yeah, I mean it's a really deep, deep province. So it's exactly what you're saying. A lot of people are moving to Manitoba on the women's side, whereas it seems like there's a bit more distribution of teams on the men's side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then even like Alberta, uh, sneaky good province, and now really deep province um, with with the skips that are there now. But Manitoba, that is an all-star province now with Flaxy and Flurry, and then uh, Jennifer Jones's team adding Jocelyn Peterman, and then the all-star team that everyone's talking about, the four skips getting together and moving to Manitoba, uh, Carrie Einerson, Val Sweeting, Shannon Burchard, and Brienne Mayur, uh, forming a team to obviously their goal is to make the Olympics. Yep. I think, and that's kind of the one I think everyone's talking about. It's the classic question. Do you, do you get four skips and hope to get together and form a super team? Uh, or do you kind of build by position I think that the interesting thing is if the top two teams were uh, Jones and home in the last cycle, they both kind of stood pat pretty much, with the exception of Jones just replacing a retiring player and kind of picking up what I think is the best available second. Um, and then Einerson's team, I, I, to me, I could see that going really well, or it'll, you know, to quote Taylor Swift, it's going to go down in flames, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I could see, uh, if not... All of the team, there may be there might be one or two change ups on that team over the course of the quad, but it could also work, right? Pretty quickly based on the shot making. Yeah, we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out very quickly with that team whether there's too many cooks in the kitchen or not. Uh, the team I like again is another team that stayed together is the Casey Scheidegger team in Alberta. I like that team a lot, and I'm glad they stayed together. And I'm interested to see how they do against. These new teams have formed with Chelsea Carey and Kelsey Rock uh, and Laura Walker, formerly Laura Crocker. Yeah, so that team is another one that, that probably, I mean, they, they've been around, so it probably may not, not be as much of a, a jump as the, the Gunner team. But yeah, the Scheidegger team, I think, is probably one on the women's side that, uh, that'll probably start to make pretty big waves that, you know, could see them winning a Scotties could see them kind of make, putting on a deep run or even winning the Olympic trials. You're kind of stretching out four years. They've, they kind of been knocking on the door and they're, I think ready to, to punch through. So, uh, yeah. And then you have down McCar- McCarville. Did McCarville make any changes at all? Or does she stand pat? Nope. Same team. Yeah. So I, I imagine they'll, they're well with, with, Tracy Flurry moving to Manitoba. She's got, you know, I don't want to quite say auto birth, but she's got a pretty clear Close path to the Scotties, right? Oh yeah, and she's, I mean, she has Scotties experience. Well, she may not, she's not that team that's going to go out on tour um, a whole heck of a lot, but she has Scotties experience, and she's a really good curler, and she's got you know a good third and front end and i can see them doing well every year in the scotties as long as they're coming out of northern ontario 
Yeah, I, I think what's interesting is strategically they are a defense first team. And one of the things that's interesting is a lot of these slam teams kind of have what I'd call grand slam curling strategy. They all kind of do the, they mm -hmm. play a pretty aggressive style, a lot more kind of gunning for the big ends. And sometimes you see, you see this in a lot of sports where if there's a team that's actually really good defensive team and they're kind of really drilled in that, they can they can tie up a team that's used to playing a certain way. You knock them out of their comfort level. I think every single time she goes to the Scotty, she catches some of the, the big name teams off guard just because they're not used to that kind of old school, we're going to grind it out and hit it and, and kind of see who blanks first kind of game. But she is a master at that. Like mm -hmm. she just, you know. Can really shut teams down. I wouldn't be surprised if they won a Scotties. They're a bit. They're a bit like the old school Colleen Jones team back in the early 2000s, yeah. where they just would hit you to death, and people would complain on TV. But they won. They won a lot of stuff doing that. So. Mm -hmm. So with these with these all star teams, this isn't a new thing. Like every everyone's kind of making a big deal about the the Carrie Einerson team getting together, but this this isn't a new thing, right? Like we saw Furby and the Wrench do this and put together dream teams in the past. It's just is it now just with the whole with it with it being about doing it every quad and gunning for the Olympics? Is it just now you know is that kind of put the spotlight on it and kind of jammed together the timing? Like this isn't a new a, you know, a new thing that's happened that's just happened. You know, this well, last couple I think of years. Curling right? teams have always been um, based on a free agent model, right? So that that part's not new. Everyone tries to get together at the end of every season, put together a team, and and go as far as you go. And I think rationally, as long as there's been some version of competitive curling, you always want to get with the three other best players you can, and. There certainly have always been super teams in terms of the four best players available. So that's, I think, the same. But there's a lot of stuff that's different. Like, to me, the Furby team, to my mind, actually wasn't a super team when it was formed, right? It was... Furby was kind of seen as washed up. He'd been kicked off the Kevin Martin team or broken up with Kevin Martin <laughs> pretty rough way. And then Dave Nettowin was... Like his version of the story is he basically is moving out to Edmonton, put some feelers out, and just kind of said, "Hey, I'm looking for a curling team, right?" And uh, Furby and Marcel Rock got word of it, and that's kind of how they got together. But Marcel Rock was kind of a good local area competitive curler, but not not kind of elite elite. And then Pfeiffer was kind of just out of juniors and and seen as kind of up and coming, but. Uh, and kind of, you know, a chance to play with a multiple Briar champions, obviously appealing. But they, I don't think they thought of themselves as a super team. I don't think they really were a super team in terms of how they were formed. I think they were, let's just see how this goes kind of thing. And the team dynamics were so great on that team that they, they became a super team kind of after the fact. But it wasn't a case of here's four household names getting together. The only household name at the time was Randy Furby on that team. Um, but the Ed Wernick team was definitely a team where you had four skips getting together, and would back then the goal was to win Briars, maybe not or win Briars and win Bonspiels, maybe yeah. not necessarily get together to make a run at the Olympics. Yeah, so the '83 Wernick team that's called the Dream Team that was, you know, Paul Savage had won a Briar on his own. Wernick had won, you know, been kind of a, a top competitive curler around Toronto. They get together and they pick up a front end of other skips. So that that was, I'd say, dream team for Toronto, kind of like four skip, four top competitive curlers from the region getting together, forming a team that was really good. Now, now a couple of things to keep in mind is that 
Ontario curling at that point in time was was kind of seen as a bit bit behind the times compared to out west, right? Like if you look at the stats back then, Alberta, okay. Manitoba, Saskatchewan always dominated the Briar. So them coming out of Ontario, out of the biggest media market in Canada and winning, having a bit of character behind it, that's part of what made it the dream team, dream team, right? So if if Einerson wants to look for a model of a of a team of four skips that works, probably the wrench you can you know could do a lot worse than the eighty three wrench team, right? But to to my mind, the classic wrench team is the later one in the nineteen nineties where it's Kawaja, Pat Perud, and, and Ian Tetley, and that's a team that's like the best player at that point in time, every single spot for that position, right? So it's not four skips. It's let's get the best lead, the best second, the best third in form kind of a team. And and that team was, was kind of that – was, that was also kind of – I mean, the wrench chained up his strategy. He went from being kind of the draw master while he's still kind of a top tra- touch player. He kind of rebuilt the team into kind of a classic late 80s, early 90s hitting team, right? They were kind of known as the Bash Brothers. They just, you know, do runbacks and – when there weren't many runbacks going on and doubles were pretty easy for them. So um, that to me is kind of the, the, the model for now. I think the big differences are this. One, the contemporary teams are all now cross Canada, right? You're looking for the best player from anywhere in the country. Uh, and I think the most successful teams are really thinking positionally in terms of dream team, not... Um, not let's just get the four best skips. So the reason the Einerson teams kind of, I think, got so much attention is getting the four best skips is not really how team formation is done anymore. So, and if you want good background on this, go listen to the most recent Two Girls in a Game podcast. They talked to Devin Hero from CBC, and he kind of talks about the identity crisis, as he put it, that that curling uh, is experiencing right now, at least in Canada, where, you know, it's almost, you know, you, t- you talk about globalism and the elimination of borders that's kind of happened in Canadian curling now, like, right, those those provincial borders are kind of being erased, but you still have to deal with the Briar and the Scotties being the two big money makers and needing to, in at least in name represent a province so that you can compete in those two events but these are curlers coming together from across Canada rather than oh the best curlers in you know Saskatchewan are getting together to make a run at the Briar yeah so uh yeah I mean the goal so the other big change is it's a four-year commitment right whereas I'd say even back 20 years ago it was one year see what you do kind of thing review in May uh but yeah, I think the the money, the CTRS standings is what primarily matters, right? You're you, you're basically saying we're going to go out and get as many CTRS points as possible so that we end up being one of the eight teams in the roar of the rings at the end of the quad, and then when we get there, we're going to take our chances, right? That's the that's basically the the game plan for all these kind of super elite teams. Um, so it's the knocking down of the borders, but I think also the other thing is it's a lot more of a business model now, right? Like these teams are probably putting together sponsorship packages. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm not really, obviously not privy to the conversations that go on behind the, the, te- the scenes, but a lot of the top, top curlers, the sponsorship may just go with one player. And so part of what goes into this team formation is one or two players may have major backers behind them, and that may kind of drive some of the decisions about who 
who teams up with who, right? Who's going to, you know, who's going to get their kit sponsorship, who's going to get their, you know, the money to kind of cover all the expense of entering the bond spiel. So those are big factors too. That's kind of the thing with the Epping team now, right? They get the weed man money because they have Brent Lang on the team. Is that right? Yeah, I think the, I mean, the, I think that's the, uh, the family business and the weed man sponsorships followed Brent wherever he's gone. So that's definitely kind of part of the conversation there. But a lot of the other kind of top teams, it's the, the skip or one of the other top players also has some kind of sponsorship deal. And you know, the money does in the background kind of drive a lot of, of the, those kind of team decisions, right? So here's my question with these, with what we're going to do the next quad. Is it going to become like college football where you see teams that know that they're going to make a coaching change? They're firing coaches at the end of October, beginning of November, so they can get to the front of the line to get the next up-and-coming head coach. Uh, it kind of worked as as a Virginia Tech fan. It really worked out for for us. Um, our former coach Frank Beamer, who had been with the school for over twenty five years, uh, announced that he was going to retire uh, just in the middle in the middle of the season, and that put Virginia Tech at the front of the line and helped us to make a very good hire in Justin Fuente, who was in this up and coming head coach who was at the University of Memphis. But that but Coach Beamer announcing that midway through the season instead of end of November, beginning of December at the end of the season really helped the school transition by, by being at the front of the line to, to get that next head coach. Is that going to happen in curling? Are we going to have teams announcing, you know, beginning of January of, uh, 2022 beginning of January that they haven't won, uh, the Canadian Olympic trials that they're, they're announcing they're splitting up early so that they can try and and get to the front of the line to get the best, uh, thirds and seconds available. I, I think that already happened this quad, the announcements didn't happen, but I'm pretty sure that the second the trials were over, those teams went and had conversations about what are we going to do? And a lot of, uh, the, Probably uh, had a lot of new teams forming at the patch at the Briar, right? I think most of the teams were formed even before that. Like, okay. it, you know, I, I, my understanding is the Einerson team went into the, the Manitoba playdowns knowing they were done. They probably sat down after the oh, wow. trials in early January and said, I think we're done. And uh, like that was the goal. They wanted to go their separate ways, so they agreed kind of everyone was a free agent. And uh, probably a lot of phone calls started happening you know, even even before Christmas, maybe. Now the announcement's a different thing because there's probably a lot of work going on into it. Now the interesting thing is, did that then put the Cooey team in a bit of a disadvantage, right? So if Holman kind of knew yeah. they were sticking together, Cooey's obviously not going to start making plans for next cycle when they got to go with gold medal. Yeah. But, but my hunch is that a lot of the other top men's teams had already started working out what they were going to do. That's a very good point. Before Kevin Cooey got back from Pyeongchang. And so maybe Cooey had a bit of a disadvantage in terms of who he could go out and get, right? Because maybe people were like, well, Kennedy's, you know, Kennedy, why would Kennedy leave, right? Why would Cooey's not going to fire Mark Kennedy? But maybe that was a... Uh, kind of a bit of a surprise development there. So that you could see that going forward that the winning the trials, if you're gonna keep curling competitively afterwards, might put you at a disadvantage early on for the next quad. 
I think the other thing to keep in mind is that next year is basically a tryout year because you're not accumulating points towards the Olympic trials. You're not accumulating mm. points for your country in terms of Olympic qualification. So even though there's going to be a lot of shakeup at the start of next season about who's where, I would not be surprised to see a lot of big shakeup at the end of next season for teams that just couldn't get it together. Once it starts counting. Yeah, once it starts counting kind of thing. So... That kind of transitions the question of team building and team dynamics, I think. That's right. So let's put on your Professor Havercroft hat and talk about this. When you're going to build a team, like how, like, you know, what goes into that? Are you, you know, you, we've, we've kind of talked about, do you get an all-star team or do you look at who fits with who? Like what's, I mean, what, what winds up being best, getting the best player or getting the best fit? Uh, so that's like a, it's a kind of an interesting question, right? So I think the all-star thing doesn't work at almost any level, right? And so I'm assuming this is not just for... Well, I'm it's, assuming Kevin Cooey doesn't need my advice on how to form a team. So It's worked for the Golden State Warriors, Jonathan. <laughs> it has worked for the Golden State Warriors, but it did not work for the Oklahoma City Thunder, right? So... There's a lot, or it didn't work for the LA Lakers, you know, five, six years ago where they went and it, got all stars, right? Well, it worked when they got Shaq and then won a whole bunch of titles. So it worked when they the got NBA, Shaq, this, but remember when they got, <laughs> when they got Dwight Howard and Steve Nash and that they, were did not work. And washed, they were old and washed up. They were all, they got, they got, they got prime Shaq. <laughs> I think it, it really very much depends. So it's not like to me, the Warriors worked because this one spot they needed was the one that Kevin Durant happened to fill out. And Kevin Durant's the kind of player who's happy to not, to be perhaps the top player on the team, but not necessarily the alpha, right? So he's yeah. kind of used to used to being next to Westbrook. So it worked in that sense. But, you know, Melo seemed like trouble all year in OKC, at least from my perch in, yeah, <laughs> in England, uh, right? Just, uh, yeah, if you... Yeah, if you could see that from England, imagine paying attention to that team. <laughs> <laughs> right? And I think a lot of people, myself included, figured that they were back in the 50-win range and were going to make a deep playoff run. Probably not get past, you know, the Golden State yeah, Warriors. Were, but, yeah. like, the, the team dynamics were clearly off on that team, right? So I think in any sport, team dynamics matters. I think... The, the big difference with curling is it's a game of pure free agency and no general managers, right? With the exception yeah. of some countries that have kind of top-down coach light infrastructure. Most curlers kind of self-form their teams all the way up to the elite level. And so there's a lot of different factors that go into it. But getting four players, uh, the best players, isn't necessarily going to get you the best results, right? So, yeah. And it's interesting that curling has four because there's 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 this guy named howard bloom and he's famous in the industry that i'm involved with because he's the former publicist for prince and michael jackson and kiss and all these big acts like everyone went to this guy um you know in the in the 80s and 90s as their publicist so he is kind of he kind of also is a amateur sociologist and amateur psychologist uh and i saw him on this documentary about hockey enforcers and he was talking about this principle that came from this research from this guy named rich savin williams who studied uh kids at summer camp 
And basically every group that has been studied throughout human history kind of evenly divides into the leader, the lieutenant slash enforcer, uh, the joker, and the nerd. Uh, and this happened during the summer camp research. Like, So they divided these kids into... Uh, into groups and they became you know one person stood out as the leader one person came out as kind of the second in charge or the enforcer and then you had the joker and the nerd and then they took four alphas from each of these groups and put them together and those four alphas like over time fell into those groups one became the leader one became the lieutenant one became the joker and one even became the nerd um so it's interesting that you know with, with curling having four guys like I, I think that schuster's team is like a perfectly perfect example of this where when you have a team of four guys on a curling team that divides into you know those four subsets i think you've got a really solid team that is capable of incredible things and we saw that in pyeongchang and it's going to be interesting to see these teams that have formed like how that sorts out and who becomes what on those teams because if you if you don't if you have two guys who spend four years battling to be the leader that team's not going to succeed yeah i think i think that's issue number one when you go with an all skip team right so i'll pick on my men's team my kind of i wouldn't say breaking up men's (laughs) team but my my men's team that we formed two seasons ago the world of english curling is really small basically Three of us were skipping teams at the rink. We're all Canadian expats playing at a certain level. And we said, yeah, we want to go play competitively. We want to take a run in for the English men's championship. And conversation number one had to be, okay, who wants to play what position? Because I'd basically been skipping for a decade. Uh, Greg had been skipping for a decade. And Braden, Jonathan Braden, the other Jonathan on the team had been skipping for a decade and we went to a spiel and kind of rotated around and, and sat on a lineup that we thought worked but even with I, I, there was never really any grumbling about position play and I was kind of the one playing second I was kind of quite comfortable doing that but there's a lot of little things you got to think through right so me playing second I'm used to kind of calling the game and have a lot of perspective on strategy but the question is how often is my voice going to be useful when do i need when should i be making input on that or should i be putting my focus on something else that's kind of personally something i had to kind of think through and then when you're melding players in different perspectives people have strong tactical preferences right like Braden mm-hmm. came from alberta really used to the kind of run back game greg kind of grew up with a junky ottawa game so he likes to play junk so right off the bat you've got one guy who wants to throw big weight and another guy just wants to throw a lot of draws and i'm kind of a bit more of a in the middle on that perspective i'd say greg's a big gambler likes to kind of go for the big end and i'm a bit more risk averse trying to manage the game properly play the percentages kind of guy so even if everyone's getting along and happy with their positions there's a lot of other stuff that you got to kind of think through on ice and then even off ice there's simple stuff like who shares a room with whom you know what kind of music do people like in the car Right, like you, you, <laughs> we ran you, into that in Fort Wayne. Yeah, exactly. Right, going to Fort Wayne, Ron did not like. What, what were we listening? To? Was it Kanye or Jay? We were listening we were to listening some hip hop. No, we were listening to the, the latest Kanye album. Yeah, Ron did not like that. <laughs> no, Ron did not like. No, Ron, who was an older gentleman from from Ottawa, did not appreciate the other three of us uh, mostly listening to Kanye while in Fort Wayne. 
Yeah. And so one of the things that's kind of really worth thinking about is how does that warm side of the glass stuff play off? Like you're, when you're bond spilling with a team, let's let's say we're thinking about this from like a club level. Let's say that let's pick up rather than Olympic cycle. Let's apply the same principle and say, let's say you want to go out and form an arena Nats team for next year, right? Mm-hmm. I would say even getting the four best players at your curling club if you don't like each other off ice, it's not going to go very well, very far. And even if you do get along, you've still got to like work through um, what your role is on that team, how you're going to communicate with each other, what's your team's strategy. And that can all take kind of a lot of time, right? So um, how to build a good team is kind of an interesting question. I really like your leader, lieutenant, uh, joker, nerd kind of cycle. The so team, in your English team, in your English team, where you brought, you know, four guys who were used to skipping together, where did you wind up falling into on the the leader, lieutenant, joker, nerd principle? Where did you fall in at the at when everything kind of settled? I think so. It's kind of interesting. I I would say, and I think we actually agree with this that unfortunately, I don't think we really settled until late this season and. Part of that's just we're so spread out and we don't we don't get to play much. And part of it's just because English curling's so thin, a lot of our games aren't really quality games. So actually, you know, our record was really good, we, but we blow out a lot of teams and kind of at Fenton's rank like 14-2 and go to some lower tier bond spiels and blow teams out. But when we were kind of getting we, our opportunity to play against teams that were at the level we'd want to play to win English men's, we weren't kind of getting the results that we'd kind of be falling one or two shots short. And it's really only our kind of final spiel in Aberdeen and our bond spiel in uh, kind of the English National Championships where we actually played really well. Like actually as a team, I thought that's the best I played on a team in about 20 years, both individually and the dynamics clicked in. And from my own perspective, the thing that changed was I personally switched into what you'd call the joker mode, right? I think <laughs> I think Braden and I were kind of, I wouldn't say fighting, but... You know, I, part part of this is my professional disposition because I'm a, a you know a university professor. I'm used to standing in front of the class and saying this is the way it is, and so that's that kind of maybe personally makes it hard for me to sit back and just be in that second mode. And like Braden and I get along really well, and we're chatting all the time. But but part of it was I basically didn't really go down consciously during those two spiels. It was more me and Ian, our lead, who his nickname's Gasser. So he and I were yakking a lot, and I would just start making really sarcastic comments and keeping it loose, and so. I think by the end, Ian was laughing at all the terms I invented. So I'm not sure. Do you know what a junior deuce is in curling? Uh, no. No. So junior deuce is basically to split the rings and try to score your two by putting one on the 12 foot on one side, one on the 12 foot on the other side, right? So it's called the junior <laughs> deuce because it's the easiest strategic call. So I invented something called the junior force when a team nose hit against it. They're going for the peel to blank the end and they nose hit. And scored one. So I called that the junior force, right? Because like a force in curlings, you're trying to force the other team to score one. So we hadn't done anything to force them, but we got it the kind of easy way. And then later on, someone flashed on an open hit. So I joked to Gasser, and that's the junior steal, right? So <laughs> I, it was kind of like, I wouldn't say, I mean, my humor is kind of dad humor, admittedly. But, you know, I kind of became the, the guy who was like, let's blow off some steam when things go bad kind of guy, right? And I think that matters. I think when you're listing your cycle of who's what, the team that made me think of right away is actually the Beatles, right? It's, it fits okay. onto the Beatles perfectly, right? Like the nerd yeah, is totally does. George. The Joker's obviously Ringo. The leader is John and the lieutenant is Paul. Yeah. 
right? You can just totally see that like from away, that that's basically how that team team worked, right? And same kind of principle. So I think it's a really good good kind of way to look at a team dynamic. But part, but the interesting question is, is that natural? So you probably want to think a little bit about the personalities and where they slot in, or does that just emerge over time? So like one of the things they talk about in coaching literature is what's called the performance wheel. And the idea here is that a team itself will go through a kind of natural cycle. And certainly with my men's team and some of the junior teams I've coached, this definitely happens, is that there's basically four stages. They call it forming, storming, norming, and performing. And so what they mean by that is the beginning when you form with a new team, nobody knows each other. And so at the beginning, you're all kind of polite and walking on eggshells, right? And you think about it like if you've ever had, have you ever had roommates or, you know, yeah. Oh yeah, like yeah, like moving into college at the University of Oklahoma. Yeah, this is definitely yeah. classic. <laughs> this definitely right? fits into that. So for the first week or two, you're kind of nice, polite, whatever, and then your roommates, some things that you don't even think about day one or day two, start to annoy you, and then normally with with college, I'd say by week three or week four, you're having some bust up with your roommate, right? Absolutely, <laughs> that's kind of classics. Same that, on a curling that, team. Sometimes that lasts all uh, all year. Yeah, and it lasts all year because what you've got to do, no matter this like applies to everything. No matter what you do, what's coming to the surface is what are the rules that we're going to use as a group to kind of get along and function. As you can apply this to an office, a family, roommates, anything. But we call this the norming stage, where the team's got to sit down and collectively decide. Are we going to do this or are we not going to do this? And most teams break up at that stage. When you see teams having a big blow up or someone leaving a team early, it's because they can't figure out, can we put in place a rule that's going to, a rule or a norm or how we're going to handle ourselves um, that's going to kind of get us going forward. But to me, the successful teams are the ones that go through that storming stage, dump the crap on the table and say, here's what's annoying to me. Here's what I want. Here's what I need as a player. And the other players listen and say, okay, we'll do it that way, right? And I'm sure if you ask any of those elite teams, they're going to go through some cycle like that, right? So when people look at the Kui team bickering back and forth about strategy, to me, my hunch is they weren't really storming, right? They just basically agreed that Kevin's the kind of skip who wants a lot of input and they're happy to provide that. I guarantee you a team functioning at that level couldn't have won all the stuff they did in that four years if they hadn't had lots of conversations about it. And the fact that their coach is a sports psychologist, I guarantee you one of the things that he spent a lot of time working with them on is the interpersonal dynamics on that team probably both on and off ice. But one of the big questions teams go, go through is who says what when? What do I want to hear and see from my teammates when I miss? What do they say to me? What do I want to hear at the end of an end, right? What do I, you know, and often it's not the bickering about strategy that annoys people. It's It could be something as simple as one player really wants to know the split time and the other player doesn't want to know anything. And you may not know yeah. that until you've played a couple of spiels. So, and a lot of teams never kind of talk that through. And so you've got one player who's pissed off that a guy's giving info he doesn't want and the other player wants that. So to me, that's the bigger issue. I'd say most of the elite teams are kind of aware of that performance wheel in some way, shape or form. Like any high level coach, it's a kind of pretty, pretty basic concept. But I think for the fan, what to think about is 
My prediction is that what's going to happen early in the next quad is a lot of the teams that have just formed, they're either going to blow up entirely or they're going to go through some turnover change, right? So if you, you want like a good example, the Val Sweden team from the last cycle, right? They had a lot of rotation yep. at the third position until they, they uh, kind of finally settled down two years out, right? And to me, that's probably a sign that just someone didn't quite fit with that team dynamic. And so they agreed to go a different way, right? Um, I think in a certain sense, Chelsea, uh, probably Chelsea Carey, Amy Nixon was probably to my mind, the most contentious team dynamic on the ice, right? Yeah. And we, and we saw that on, on live television during worlds too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was really interesting to me how well they played once they slotted in Kathy Overton Clapham, Clapman, right? Yeah. She's just like, she had the exact personality that I think Chelsea Carey needed. She was like super mellow, very supportive, would give an option. But if Chelsea Carey is very kind of strong headed and I want it this way, she's like, okay, fine. Wouldn't get kind of bickery about it, right? And on another team, I think maybe another team, Amy Nixon's a super accomplished curler. That personality probably works really well, but it probably just didn't work in that team despite the fact they won a Scotties, right? It was kind of like it clearly couldn't carry itself over all the way through the Olympic cycle. So to me, the reason why most people are worried about the, the four-person skipping team is exactly that performance wheel, right? The, the question to me is, are the, especially the front-end players, are they going to be comfortable going from skip to playing front-end? And is Val Sweeting going to be comfortable going from a role where she's been in charge all the time, got to make the final shot, final decision? Is she going to be comfortable moving from leader to kind of a lieutenant role? Yeah, and then even more so with the with, with the front end, you know, how how is that dynamic going to work, and do do either of them fit into? I mean, the Joker and the Nerd, that kind of those are front end guys usually, right? I think in the ideal, but I I can think of some teams like to me if you listed that off and looked at the fur before the enforcer was clearly Marcel Rock. Oh yeah, by far. I mean, you saw him, and they even talked about this in that two girls in a game pod that I referenced was the the 2004 Briar where he's threatening to, to beat up a fan in the middle of the last two rocks of the whole game yeah so he was clear I'm, I'm sure on the team when you have two young guys he was clearly like uh you know you gotta you know two young guys he's basically showing them the ropes going on tour I'm sure like off ice he was probably maybe not enforcer but clearly like kind of you know older guy kind of showing the young guys what's going on right like team leader kind of role so I don't think that four person rotation necessarily has to rotate into the throwing order but you you do you don't want too many people being the boss right and i think yep. primarily that with curling it's i i think it'd be very hard to see a situation where the boss or leader wasn't the skip okay so let's take let's take the new manitoba team McEwen, carruthers semigalski colin hodgson how do you think that that team fits into what we were talking about with the you know the leader, lieutenant, et cetera, et cetera, principal. And then how do you see that team working out through your performance wheel? Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I th my hunch is, I don't know them well enough, but just kind of going off Twitter, I'd say Hodgson's the natural joker on that team, right? Yeah, All right. And then, I agree with that. I, I, I don't, I'm not sure Samogowski's the nerd or not, but I think probably front end, that's the question. The, the back end's where the question is, right? Is... Mm -hmm. Who 
can't so the advantage to Mike McEwen is he can throw the, the last rock no problem but is he gonna how are Reed and Mike going to handle the decision making about um you know what shot you're gonna call right and at some point yep. I think that that is Mike gonna be comfortable uh be comfortable letting Reed call the entire end and are they gonna be on the same page with that and then who's gonna be the leader in the moment of crisis to me that's the bigger issue is not who's doing what kind of actual role on the team, but what when the team's kind of going through a rough patch early on, not getting the results they want, who's going to be the one saying, I'm the leader, this is what we're going to do, kind of pull them through, and who's going to be the one kind of enforcing the team dynamic up front? So that, that's kind of question one. And then I think performance wheel side, I think they'll probably, I mean, I'm sure they know this performance wheel really well. The question's going to come up, probably a team like that, what I suspect will happen is they'll actually come out on fire. I think early next season, I wouldn't be surprised if it's Carruthers McEwen winning a slam, winning a bunch of stuff, etc. And then they're going to hit a rough patch. They're going to they're going to crap all over themselves in a big event. And to <laughs> me, the classic example of this is go look at Kevin Cooey's team first Briar out, the, the last cycle team, right? Yeah. So this would be the 2015 Briar, right? And I was, I'm not sure if it was you or another friend of mine, but someone I remember texting me saying, this team's going to be good if they get it together, but they didn't even make the playoffs, right? They were kind of bickering all the time. They didn't really do do what they had to do. And they actually had, if you remember, Langer was vice and Kennedy was throwing thirds rocks but sweeping, right? And they ended up having to switch up the lineup. So one thing that could happen with the Carruthers team when they kind of hit their, their benchmark is Carruthers could end up moving down to third or deciding he's going to throw last rock. Isn't that what that's what we saw? We saw your whole performance cycle play itself out in the span of one briar with that Simmons Morris team. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? They kind of are like, what the hell is this team going along fine, not getting the results, having some kind of dust up, and then figuring things out, right? And yep. that that wheel can kind of just play itself out in an event too, right? Like. Uh, I think most of, well, I'd say the other team it played itself out for was was um, Schuster. Yeah. Right. I, I guarantee you they had a gut check moment at the Olympics when it looked like holy crap we're gonna fall bottom of the table again. <laughs> they had to have had some kind of heart to heart conversation, work out what's going wrong, and then they just went on a tear. Right. Yep. Yeah. They had. Yeah. He was. He, as a team, they were the best team in the world for five days, and it was the correct five days to be the best team in the world. Yeah, <laughs> they peaked at the right time, second half yep. of the Olympics, right? So, yep. uh, yeah, but I think in terms of team dynamics, I think what we're going to look at is a lot of those new teams, if there's not going to be a complete blow-up, there'll definitely be players being rolled in and off over the next season. So I wouldn't assume that the, the, the 35 teams you have on your spreadsheet are going to be the exact same next year now the closer we get to trials in the olympics the more stable those teams are going to be but for now it's going to be pretty kind of pretty uh shaky i'd say for the first bit of the cycle so it will be it will be interesting to watch it will be interesting to see if we have to do this exact same podcast 12 months from now um but yeah looking forward to summer curling looking forward to when teams get back on the ice and we get to see these new teams uh, in september and october uh, but thank you all so much for listening to us. 
Uh, we're we're going to keep doing this through the summer, maybe not as regularly as we did for the first uh, six episodes. You might see an episode here or there throughout the summer, and we're going to try to have some guests, as Jonathan alluded to. Um, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and wherever else uh, you happen to listen to podcasts. Please subscribe. Please leave us a review. Um, we want to hear from you. We want to hear uh, what you want us to talk about. We want to hear um, your reactions to anything we've said. So please hit us up on Twitter at Curling Podcast. Uh, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. Uh, and yeah, we hit it. We we get into summer curling. Uh, the season, the professional season's over, but curling season uh, never ends. So uh, thank you all for for listening to our first few episodes here, and we're we're hoping to to keep it going uh, through the summer and into next season. Uh, so yeah, thank you all so much for listening, and we look forward to seeing you again next episode, Jonathan. I'll see you here in a few. Yeah, see you soon. All right. Bye, everybody.